Have you ever had a civil discussion with someone you disagreed with or who had a different perspective than you? If you have, what did you learn? Here on The Moderate Review, we try to have these kinds of discussions. So, let's talk. On this episode of The Moderate Review, I am joined by Jay Stevens Voboda, PR Director for the National Coalition for Men, or NCFM, and we discuss gender equality and what the NCFM advocates for. So, let's talk. Listeners note, this episode of The Moderate Review was originally recorded on October 18th, 2021. I actually don't necessarily hold an unpopular opinion, but I hold an opinion people think is unpopular. My opinion is that people should be treated equally, that there shouldn't be discrimination. Well, there are people who are in favor of discrimination, but I think they're the minority. What, why is my view unpopular? My view is unpopular because the, the class of people that shouldn't be treated unfairly and should be treated without discrimination includes people of the male persuasion, which is almost 50% of our population. And it's funny because you can say to someone, I believe in equality. You can say, I believe in gender equality. But then when you say, oh, and by the way, gender equality includes males being treated fairly, um, and then you get into some specifics, especially, which we'll get into, I'm sure, people draw the line because there's been this image that men have had it so unfairly to their advantage, and we've just run roughshod over everyone for the last 5,000 years, and so now we're getting a little bit of it back, and that's only fair. And that's a lot of people harbor that, whether they'll say it or not. So that's my unpopular opinion, that I think people should be treated fairly, and that goes for the, the gender spectrum as well, males and females and anyone in between. Thank you. I totally do agree with that. You know, an eye for an eye makes the world blind. So before we kind of get right into it, so you are the public relations director for the National Coalition for Men. And so could you maybe describe what the National Coalition for Men is and what you are for and what you are not against? Well, NCFM has been around since 1977. We're the oldest and largest uh, gender, true gender equality organization in the world. And some of the things that people know about, but maybe haven't thought about, like there being changing tables for babies in men's bathrooms in airports, which wasn't always the case. That was a lawsuit we brought, and it was brought by Karen DeCrow, former president of the National Organization for Women, who was heavily involved with us. And that was one of our early legal victories. Um, more recently, we were involved in the case against the Selective Service for Only Drafting Males, which we thought, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ACLU Women's Rights Project agreed they were our lawyers, we thought perpetuated stereotypes of both men and women, which didn't help either sex. And so we were active in trying to bring that to the Supreme Court. Now, they didn't accept the case. That was earlier this year. But those are two activities we've been involved with. Many things in between. The, the late Mark Angelucci was our civil rights hero and warrior, and he did so much to advance true gender equality. And we've been fighting for that since... 1977. A precursor organization was founded in 1976, so actually since 1976. How did you get involved in NCFM? Yeah, I had a slightly unusual path to this. I went to a bookstore in Santa Monica when I was when I was still living there after going to UCLA as an undergrad, and I came across this book by by Warren Farrell, who you know I later learned is maybe the leading writer for the genuine gender equality movement, and um, he started off as a standard feminist and then sort of changed his views as he noticed things over the years that were uh, prejudice against males. So he wrote this book that I can't even think of the title off the top of my head right now, but it, it doesn't matter. He wrote this book that at the time seemed very radical to me as I read it in the bookstore and looking at it now, it looks very moderate and sort of shouldn't be controversial. But at the time I was just sort of, 
a little bit shocked by it. I was sort of a standard feminist myself, but it's sort of, I'm a fair-minded person and it sort of did eat away at me. And over time I started to think about it and think, hmm, maybe that nutcase Warren Farrell has some truth to what he's saying. And actually Warren's now <laughs> a good friend of me and my wife. And I wrote a book with him and it's like things have moved on. But I mean, that was the, my first exposure to his his thoughts. And he is actually very mild-mannered, very fair-minded, very calm and like the statesman of the of people who work on these issues. Okay. Was that book like The Myth of Male Power? No, it was the one that came before that. Okay. Um, by, the, by the way, the book Warren's working on right now is a follow-up to The Myth of Male Power that is, he's tentatively titling The Paradox of Male Power. And no, this this was a more... I, I, I can I can look up the title while we talk, but but this was a more um, how should I say it? I, I was about, I was going to say more moderate. I mean that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but it was it was an earlier book, and and he didn't phrase things as strongly, and his title wasn't as forceful, and it was easier for people to accept. So you kind of did read this book, and so like I guess there's kind of a leap from actually kind of wanting to you know reading a book and like yeah I agree with it to actually becoming the public relations director, and so. What was your kind of journey into into this? Right. So I was a standard liberal. I, I went to law school to be a do-gooder lawyer, which in fact I was a, a immigration lawyer for poor, poor people for the first half of my career. I'm now a patent lawyer, which is a, a, quite a career switch. But um, and and I, you know, I basically still have the same views that I had then. It's just that over time I became aware that oh wow, I never thought there was a demographic group that I was part of that actually had any sort of claims or any ways in which we were discriminated against or anything. But over time, I came to realize, partly based on this book, which by the way, is Why Men Are the Way They Are. Why Men Are the Way They Are. That was the first book Warren wrote after you were one feminist book. And then he sort of saw what he saw. And that was sort of his first and more, most moderate of his subsequent books, um, 1986. Over time, I just became aware there were two sides to the coin. And it's really two sides it's funny to say two sides because I feel, look, I mean, men and women are obviously our lives interrelate. I mean, many people are married to somebody of the opposite sex. We often have children. We all have parents, siblings often, and our lives are just intertwined. And so something that harms one side harms both sides and helping us to a, a world which doesn't live by these old ideas that we never really had any truth to them. That That's in everyone's interest. So that's to me, it's just common sense, and that's why it's sort of—it's funny to me that it's an unpopular opinion. It is, but but only when you phrase it as "oh, I believe men should be treated fairly" or "I believe in equal rights for men," and then people laugh like, "Ha, they've got all the rights already. What do they need rights for?" And not knowing some of the things, we'll probably drill down into later, Jack. Um, okay. But yeah, what is it that you do campaign for? And so I actually have a list of um, of topics we can discuss, and so we can start with the first one: yes, parent rights and child custody. How is there an imbalance between men and women in regards to that? The law doesn't typically facially discriminate. In other words, the law doesn't say women get preference if it's a woman and a man who are who are parents because you can't really assume that anymore, right? I mean, there's this has been true for decades, of course, but it's more true now that often you have same-sex parents. But most most families statistically still it's a, it's a man and a woman and um obviously that's necessary for the creation of the child so there's no law saying you know women get the kid or whatever women get preference but the law is enforced that way there's been some notorious things judges have said on the record in family court about oh men have no business being parents or why is that 
man so interested in his child, that's strange or things like that. And, and those are the extreme cases, but, but stepping back from the extreme cases, because those are the you know, 0.1% or whatever it is, and in a sense, aren't so important. What really is important is that every day, Jack, every day, a father and a mother get involved in a discussion about what's going to happen with their kids after a divorce. And every day, the woman just gets preference. And it's partly psychological. It's subtle. Yes, it's true. The child was in the woman's body. The child wasn't in the man's body. That's true. But there's a discrimination that goes on, a preference, however you want to phrase it. And the fathers get shorted and and locked out of their kids' lives. And it's true that sometimes fathers leave their kids' lives as well, as do mothers sometimes. But all too often, it's the story of disenfranchisement and sometimes parental alienation syndrome, which is a deliberate act by the mother. And fathers do do parental alienation syndrome too. It's not a one side is good, one side is bad sort of situation. But statistically, the fathers are the ones that get locked out of their lives. And I, and you know, in NCFM, I, I talked to hundreds, maybe thousands of heartbroken men over the years. And we do what we can for them, but there's a lot of men and we don't have the resources. We're not funded by the federal government. Unfortunately, you know, we don't get the many millions of dollars that some of the women's organizations get. And that's the way it is. If you're comfortable, could you maybe like describe it? Maybe like a, a very typical experience where these men do get locked out of their children's lives? Sure. Well, it's happening to me right now, in fact. I mean, what's happening to me is a, is a probably a relatively mild version in the scheme of things, although it's hard to see that when you're the one involved. So uh, I've been an extremely involved father. I take my kids to father-daughter and father-son weekends every year. I took one of my kids to France and Italy a couple of years ago, financed it entirely myself, took the other kid to Costa Rica, just on and on, you know. And I've been reflecting on all this recently because the mom and you know the mom isn't malevolent the mom isn't a bad person but everybody sort of acts based on the options that are available to them and there's a subtle message from society maybe not that subtle that moms matter more and time with mom matters more and then on top of that as i say you know the child's coming came out of the mom's body as a certain bond maybe with the mother that's not quite the same with the father it's similar but not maybe not exactly the same and Mothers will use that to to get more time with the kids. In my case, we had agreed 50-50 custody and stuck to that until my younger one was over 16. And now that's being reneged on and reneged on in a way that I think is harmful to the child. I think, you know, being with two parents, both of whom love him equally, is just healthier for the kid, in my opinion. And But that's not really what's driving this decision. So we actually inspired this interview was uh, Cassie Jay's TED Talk about making a movie, The Red Pill. And she mentioned about uh, paternity cases, how it always seems to be that men always kind of get, I guess I'll just say probably get screwed over in these cases, either that or the, the kid's not theirs and they're stuck paying child support. Yeah, it's it's really a shocking double standard. And, and men have been told explicitly and, and, you know, legally, there have been cases that have said that, well, you're the father and, and, you know, what are you going to do? Abandon these kids. And, you know, they're not yours. Yeah. We'll buck up and support them anyway, dude. But then none of that request for honesty and, and accountability comes from the other side. And, and feminist groups will often fight any request for accountability as, as, you know, anti woman. And, and there, there, there's a long discussion we could have. I mean, obviously men and women evolve for different purposes. If you go back thousands of years and we're still biologically, those people, and nobody's wishing for us to go back to thousands of years ago, but we evolved for different purposes. And so 
we have different ways of looking at things and accountability is, you know, it's, it's a big deal typically for men and, and for some women, but tragically when, for those that it isn't a big deal for, that can be very harmful to the father who wants to be in his, his kid's life. Well, I guess we did talk more about the societal double standards. This is probably more of the libertarian argument in regards to you know, cases of an abortion. You know, a woman can abort a baby, but it's kind of frowned upon if a father walks out on the child. That is a really clear double standard. And the question becomes, why can't a father opt out? Look, if a mother can opt out, why can't a father opt yeah. out? I mean, it's just fairness. Like, if the father wants in, then he's in. If he wants out, then he's out. That's what the mother does. But somehow with the father, we don't allow that. And there, people can make arguments about why that's okay. But it all comes down in the end to this very old view of different roles of men and women. And look, these days those double standards, those old ideas about how men and women are, those don't apply to most, most people these days. Are there, are there men like that? Of course there are. Are there women like that? Of course there are. But I don't believe that that applies anymore to the majority. Another thing I actually, as I was kind of studying, looking at um, NCFM, their website, they talked about um, education and kind of disparities between there. Would you like to kind of elaborate a little bit more on that? Women have, have asked, and I, I don't, disagree with this at all, but, you know, women have asked for consideration of their special uh, gender-specific typical needs and, and have, have said that, well, you know, women are, women are different in this way and need these extra things that men don't need and, and because of various aspects of our gender. And typically they've gotten them. And, but when, it go, when the shoe's on the other foot, no one wants to consider, for example, this is getting into health and I'll get back to education, for example, that men are more resistant to taking care of their health. Well, maybe men need special encouragement, and this would be education too, to take care of their health. But no one seems to want to give that. Basically, it's like, look, dude, if you're too stupid to like go to a doctor, then you're going to die. And that's just the way it is. And we don't really care. So as far as the education front goes, what's interesting is in recent years, women have started to dominate universities. And in the past, there have been calls for gender equity at universities. And, and you know, NCFM doesn't take a position on anything not directly related to equality of, of men and women and fair treatment of men and women. Um, personally, I don't necessarily disagree with the idea that if men are two thirds of people at a university, that, that equalizing it will give a more diverse experience to everyone and be fair to women. But look, now we're getting toward two thirds the other way. We're getting toward a tipping point. And a lot of universities are sort of subtly without officially advertising it, actually giving men affirmative action. And, and what is going on? Well, men tend to be at both ends of the spectrum in terms of their a- application to working hard and, and intelligence and everything else. It's, if, you, if you draw a bell curve, there tend to be more outliers on the male side, both at the plus end and at the minus end. And so women's proclivities, they're just naturally more towards sitting, this is a stereotype, but there's still some truth to it, towards sitting quietly, getting A's in class, being well-behaved, getting into universities, writing good essays, it just comes more naturally for females. And so can we give some consideration to males? I mean, what Aaron Kipnis did in Los Angeles was he let these kids that were smart, but sort of unruly and had a lot of energy, walk around in a field and read in a field and their shot scores shot up dramatically. Stuff like that, simple ideas. It's not, it's not rocket science. But unless we think of these things and try to come up with them and have sympathy for males and females both, these things don't get considered. I guess another question I do have is more of, I guess, domestic and sexual violence. One of my friends actually was abused by his girlfriend and then had another friend who was accused, wrongfully accused, that he molested his stepsister. And I will agree, you know, society and even I will say even the laws definitely tend to come down on 
men more harder, you know, particularly more as the, you know, any allegations of sexual assault. Absolutely. And especially more recently with the Me Too movement. But but even before that, and the Me Too movement's interesting. I mean, obviously we, well, I shouldn't say obviously perhaps, but look, we, we don't support any man getting away with raping a woman or sexually assaulting mm-hmm. a woman. And a lot of these Me Too stories are that. But But I would suggest possibly not entirely all of them. I would suggest there's also a few that are close to the edge. There, I mean, there's the case of Aziz Ansari, who's a well-known comedian. I actually saw him perform in Chicago. And uh, I mean, he was basically on a date and he basically like kissed a woman who didn't want to be kissed. And it turned into this whole thing. And, you know, he went on stage and sort of apologized and stuff. Well, well that's what happens on dates. I mean, I, look, I mean, can rape happen on dates? Of course it can. But men and women's relationships are a complex battlefield. And to then, you know, make it, sort of make it into a battleground, turn something that's inherently the opposite of a battleground into a battleground and makes, just makes life needlessly complicated. So as far as domestic violence goes, here's a very surprising to most people. I was surprised by it when I first learned it many years ago. Domestic violence happens in both directions just about equally. And in fact, Warren Farrell, who's very careful about documenting his data, says that it happens slightly more in the direction of women towards men, and also that it's slightly more violent women's t- women toward men. Well, how can that be? Well, women, women often use weapons, whereas men often just use their fists. Um, women often plan ahead. Men often don't. It's a spur of the moment. You can Google Martin Fiebert. His last name is F like Frank, I-E-B-E-R-T. Martin Fiebert has compiled a bibliography of many hundreds of two-way studies of domestic violence, and, and there's not a single one that is documented that men are victimized less than women. It's, it's, it's equal or sometimes it's slightly more in the female to male direction. And this is a strange fact that even the, domestic, the, the Department of Justice of the United States says that over one third of such violence is from women toward men. Now they, are, they got the number wrong. It's more than a third. But even if even the Department of Justice is saying that, obviously this image that's being painted and domestic violence shelters is only one in the entire country that accepts men. I mean, how can this be? If women were victimized a third of the time and men were victimized two thirds of the time, would be okay just ignoring the women? Ah, you don't matter. You're only a third of the victims. Get out of my face. You would never get away with that. And any politician who said that Democratic or Republican would be immediately thrown out of office and never be able to run for office again. So why can we get away with doing this to men? Men are disposable. Society doesn't care about men. We really don't. As a society, we really don't care about men. And we've shown that over and over and over. But the Constitution still requires gender equality. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments still say men and women should be treated equally. And some of women's most important victories in getting equality were won in cases that involved men. That's another interesting thing. And Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg brought some of those cases as a lawyer, in fact. Could you maybe like name a few some of those cases? I don't have them at, at, at the tip of my tongue, but but I mean, there, there was one famous case that involved... Um, spouses, widowed spouses being treated equally in terms of the benefits they got and one gender was being unfavorably treated relative to the other other gender. Women were getting higher benefits and men who were bereaved were getting lower benefits. And that, and that was addressed by, the, by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her organization. And, and the, the underlying principle is we have these ideas about women as helpless and women as powerless and not agents for themselves. And of course, nobody likes those ideas anymore. It's funny, though, because we're trying to have it both ways and we don't necessarily even realize this, catch ourselves as a society doing this. But we want to have the new ideas about women being powerful and strong. And that's what we believe. 
But then at the same time, these old ideas come up when we think about, well, should we treat men equally? Or let's not even treat them equally. How about if men get 40%, get kids 40% of the time in custody and, and mothers get them 60%? Well, that wouldn't feel right to us. We wouldn't want any mother to not have their kid. And the dads, eh, they don't care. They'll, they'll go see a movie. They'll be okay. They'll fix their car on the weekend or whatever. I mean, there is this underlying narrative that we have. It's subtle, but it's so pervasive. And that's why even for me, when I first heard that fact about domestic violence, I didn't just believe it right off. I mean, it just, it surprised even me because it's not the ideas that we're, that we're grounded in. And, and just quickly, since you asked me, I, I found a couple of cases, Cleveland versus Lafleur, 1974, school board rule requiring women to take unpaid maternity leave after the first trimester of pregnancy. That was invalidated. And that was, that was to protect women. Ruth Ginsburg was involved in that. And then in 1975, there was a case where the Social Security Act gave more money to women and it was, you know, it was to benefit them. It was for good, but that was also held unconstitutional. So just a whole bunch of cases like that, which in a way are early foreshadowings of this Supreme Court case we had recently involving the Selective Service, where the Women's Rights Project actually said um, Selective Service harms both men and women because it perpetuates these old ideas. And, and so we're gradually moving into the 21st century. Now we're moving into it 21 years too late, but we gradually are. So that, that's, that's good news. And I guess since you kind of already brought it up, maybe perhaps I'll be probably the first, but perhaps my views are uh, maybe a little archaic as well. But, you know, I'm kind of generally of the opinion, you know, women shouldn't be drafted or enlisted into the military. But, you know, I guess maybe could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on why is that, you know? Yeah, well, we don't actually take positions on issues not directly related to to gender equality. And the interesting thing about our organization is we have political liberals or people who would be liberals other than the, you know, these gender issues, political conservatives, everything in between, libertarians, people who don't have any po- political stripe, which I would describe myself as. I mean, as far as the military goes, it's a very complex picture. And um, there was a friend of the court brief. It's a, it's a brief that, that, like, if you have a, a racial discrimination case, then the NAACP might write a friend of the court brief talking about why they support the side that's for equal, equal treatment of black people. So we had a friend of the court brief from military, high-ranking military officers saying, you know, the military has made a decision to bring women in. Whether you like it or not, the military decided that. Who are we to second-guess the military? Right now we have uh, 20-something percent of all people in the military are female, and they're at all levels. There's, it's no longer true that they're excluded certain high-ranking positions like they used to be. And so I thought that was a really good point. I mean, there was, to be honest, there was a brief on the other side that was the only brief on the other side saying the opposite from a sort of a smaller group of, of military people. But it's hard to argue with established fact and it's hard to argue with success. And I just know, speaking personally, that there are many men who would be terrible in the military too, and I'm one mm-hmm. of them. And so I'm, at, I'm quite positive there, there are females, including traditionally minded females who would be better than I would be. And so to to make the decision just solely based on gender is just like an odd thing and just not something that's really consistent with how we're trying to live our lives now in 2021. I mean, it was the last, it was the last explicit gender discrimination on the book, on the federal law, the last one. And there's a, there's legislation being passed now that's going to make that go away. As we're kind of winding down this interview, um, what does NCFM face or some misconceptions that they face? Well, I mean, people think we're, we're woman haters, we're troglodytes, guys that are mad that it's not still 1950. And actually, 
we're a very diverse group. Um, and, and, you know, diversity raises a whole bunch of other discuss- issues that are actually sort of at right angles to NCFM. So I won't get sidetracked by them. But in the standard diversity definition that people use, we had an, an Indian ethnicity, Asian Indian ethnicity vice president for many years who was highly successful. We have many women who are principals in our organization. There are females who actually believe in this stuff just as strongly as males. As I said before, we have people from traditional left-wing, people from traditional right-wing, people from the center, people who don't have any political stripe at all. It really is sort of astonishing. And what I love about this organization, what I, what I have loved ever since I became an officer in 1997, so it's 24 years now, I'm by far the longest standing um, officer now that my dear friend Mark Angelucci, the civil rights warrior I mentioned earlier, was assassinated just over a year ago for his work to try to create equality between men and women. Um, what I've always loved about this organization, and Mark and Harry Crouch, who's the president, and I, all three of us say that the day that NCFM starts favoring special privileges for men is the day that we're turning in our resignation. I mean, that's what I've always loved about it. We're about equality. We don't get involved in things you might think would be related, like gay or lesbian issues, for example, other than to see that, again, males and females are treated fairly. We have a laser-like focus on that one concern. And that's all we do. And that's kept us busy since 1977. If you could like wave your wave a wand and like everything, what you guys are advocating for could happen. What would true gender equality look like? I mean, it's, it's not that hard to imagine. It's, it's just a world in which we let go of these old dated ideas about what men are and what women are. And why don't we evaluate people individually? And look, I mean, I understand demographic groups have their relevance, people care about them, and now more than ever with discussion of Black Lives Matter and all that. I think it's unfortunate in a sense. I think that the, I'm sure that the discussions are important and need, and need to happen, and I'm not saying they don't, and I'm definitely not getting involved in that whole discussion. So that's peripheral to, I mean, perpendicular to NCFM. But I, I do feel like what's not perpendicular to NCFM is I do feel like lasers get thrown on different issues. You know, imagine yourself in a dark theater. And suddenly a light comes up on one corner of the screen and that's what you look at. And there's other things all over the screen, but you don't see those because it's dark. Right now, the light is being focused on different ethnographic groups people can be in. And I think it's really unfortunate. I mean, we've just come through a time that I think whatever our political views are, people can agree has been divisive. There's been, and with, with COVID, that's been a further source of stress and division. People have wildly different and very strongly held views on all sorts of topics. And I think it's a real shame. I, you know, I, I, I live in an area with, where it's a lot of retired people and, and older people, and we, we all have dogs and we go out and walk our dog at night and we see each other, we chat in the, in the street. And honestly, we don't care about all that stuff. We, we, we're hanging out, we're enjoying ourselves, we're, we're connecting with another human being. I wish we could have more of that. And, and, and my, my fondest wish, and this has been true, not only ever since I joined NCFM as a member in 1996, as a board member in 1997, or even standing in Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Santa Monica in 1987, reading Warren Farrell's strange ideas about male and female equality. Can we just let go of all this stuff? Can we just like get up in the morning and live our lives and look each other in the eye and see each other for who we are? And, and, and yeah, I guess the demographic stuff has a place, but maybe not as much of a place as people think and in a funny way it gets in the way of us seeing the heart of each other and the humanity of each other and to me it's just a tragedy it's it's a tragedy online with some of the greatest tragedies that have happened in the history of the world and i think it's probably had as many casualties and a lot of them are men and women without their children committing suicide and you you don't you don't see those because they don't leave 
notes a lot of times, but it's still happening over and over and over. And even the ones that don't do that, their lives are shortened, their lives are sadder, they, they miss their loved ones. And there really are some win-wins in here if, if we have the courage and stamina to find them. And I, I really do believe that. If anybody wants to learn more about the men's rights movement, as well as the uh, information about the National Coalition for Men, uh, where would my listeners go to find out more? Well, we have a website. We're not the only ones who do, but we're quite um, proud of what our role has been over the years. And you can go to www.ncfm, National Coalition for Men, ncfm.org, ncfm.org. And there's we're posting material all the time, not just about what we're doing, but about just events going on that are that are relevant in the world. Are there any final comments you'd like to make? I feel privileged to have walked this crazy walk that I walked in my life of being a do-gooder lawyer and ending up with NCFM and all these divinely motivated people who are fighting for justice. And I, at this point, since my, my fallen dear comrade, Mark Angelucci, isn't with us anymore, at this point, I'm the only board member who was around and, and knew some of the early people, like former President Tom Williamson. And I feel like I've been gifted with knowing all these amazing people. I've always been second or third in command, as it were. So I haven't I haven't had to, had to work as hard as Harry Crouch does on behalf of NCFM, and he's done such amazing things himself. But I've been able to see all the amazing progress and victories that have been won, many of them by Mark Angelucci. And it's just been such a privilege. I just feel blessed. And I mean, it's a funny blessing because the reason I have it is because we're not yet at the promised land of genuine gender equality, which is what we're working toward. But we're getting there. We're getting there. This concludes this episode of The Moderate Review. Abraham Lincoln once said, if you look for the bad in people, and I will even add organizations and movements, you will surely find it. After the recording ended, Stephen and I talked about how there are always going to be individuals who are anti-women in the men's rights movement. Stephen frequently mentioned Mark Angelucci and alluded to his passing. And as a matter of fact, Mark Angelucci was killed by an anti-women men's rights activist who felt snubbed about his lack of a role in a case the NCFM was taking to court. Why do I bring this up? If you highlight the worst aspects or even the radicals of an organization or movement, you really don't get the full picture. I feel the men's rights movement, and I will even say the feminist movement, has been horribly represented by the media. Yes, there are those in the men's rights movement who are anti-women, just as there are those in the feminist movement who are anti-men. Despite that, it does not diminish the core of what they are advocating for, and that is equality for both sexes. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart. The views expressed in the moderate review are solely of the individuals participating and not necessarily of the organizations they are affiliated with. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please tell your friends, and please follow us on Twitter at tmodrev, that is the letter T, mod. Rev, one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart.